open to John 7, everyone. John 7, continuing our study of this gospel this morning. And the title of the message is Jesus Hated But Needed. Hated But Needed. Uh, David read the passage we're going to be in this morning, verses 1 through 13. He read that earlier, but I want to just focus on one phrase as we get started here. We're in verse 7. Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. And Jesus said, the world hates me. It's a strong statement, kind of a shocking statement in some ways. Week by week, as we preach from this pulpit, we often highlight what is lovable about Jesus, and rightly so, and there are infinite things that are lovable about Jesus. Well, this morning's text invites us to consider for a few moments what is hateable about Jesus, which sounds really strange and, and even offensive in a way to even hear that. But Jesus himself says, the world hates me. The world hates me. So what is it about Jesus that elicits this response of hatred? And not just hatred, but like a fierce hatred and opposition. What is it about him? We're going to consider that. And we're going to work our way kind of up to verse 7, which is the key verse in understanding this section of Scripture. But if you would, just begin walking with me through verse by verse and just making observations along the way. And then we'll unpack what it means that, that we humans, naturally speaking, hate Jesus and and why it is that we need him, and why it's so good that we have him. So beginning in verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So Jesus remained in Galilee, and, and you recall those who have been with us for our study, we, we've made it through chapter 6, and it was many, many weeks in chapter 6, what was called the, the bread of life discourse, where Jesus is talking about himself as the bread of life, and of course in the beginning of that chapter, he feeds the 5,000 and uh, multiplies bread and feeds them, and, and then this whole discussion about how he is the real substance, he's the real bread we need, and we've, we've talked over and over about that and how rich that is, that truth. Well, here in chapter 7, verse 1, he remains in Galilee. So in that same region in Galilee, he, he stays there. And it's kind of a region of obscurity relative to all the hustle and bustle of Judea and the capital being Jerusalem. It was kind of an obscure place. And so there he is. He's staying kind of a low-profile type ministry for the time being. And it gives the reason for that. One of the reasons that he stayed there in Galilee is says he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So the Jews, the, the religious community, we've highlighted this before, but it's important to reiterate, when we hear the term Jews, especially here in the Gospel of John, this is not an ethnic term. He's using this term to speak of them as a religious community, a religious establishment. And he's saying they were in Judea, they were kind of um, basically ruling the area in terms of the way people thought and what their activity was, and we're going to find out there's a feast going on at this time. So, so, so they are ruling and governing, in a sense, over the religious community, and they also were seeking, when it comes to Jesus, they were seeking to kill him. This is the first time we've read this in John's Gospel. It came up in chapter 5 as well, but this idea that they, they literally want to execute Jesus because he's such a problem. He's such a huge problem to them. Look at verse 2. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. So what was happening there in Judea was there was this feast. This feast goes back to the Old Testament. It's a, it's a memorial, basically an annual memorial for their wanderings in the wilderness. They would annually get together. They would live in these temporary dwellings, tents basically, or booths to commemorate their times of wandering in the wilderness when God provided for them. And they would all congregate there 
in Judea. They would come from all over the surrounding regions, and they would congregate there, mostly Jewish people, but also some Gentiles, and it was a big celebration. So there's a lot going on in Judea, but the point of it here is that Jesus is avoiding that context for the time, for the time being. Okay, he is not going there, and there's a reason for it. And the main reason is they're seeking to kill him, and he knows that his time has not yet come for that. But they're there, and the irony is they're, they're celebrating, wandering, they're celebrating God's provisions, living in tents. And as we've been learning from the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus is there in a sense, and the term is even used in chapter 1, he is, he is there tabernacling or tenting with them. God himself is with them in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, and they're wanting to kill him. Isn't that ironic that the people of God, the Israelites, the Jewish religious community, wanted to kill God in the flesh? Kind of ironic and tragic at the same time. So this feast was going on. Now continue on to verse 3. Okay, it says, Therefore his brothers, this is Jesus' actual stepbrothers, or half-brothers we could say, half-brothers, uh, they said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So Jesus' brothers say, what are you, what are you doing? All the people are down there. Go, go to Judea. Go show yourself. Show your works off. I mean, why would you not want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to show off more of your miracles? I mean, it's interesting. They're his, they're his brothers. They, they grew up with him. They knew him well. It says in verse 5, they didn't, however, believe in him. They didn't believe in him. They, they knew him to be an actual person. They were present with him often. They, I'm sure, heard some of his teachings. They either witnessed firsthand or were aware of his miracles. They, they knew who he was. They knew a lot about him, more than probably most other people. But yet it says they didn't believe in him, which is to say they didn't see him, and we'll borrow from chapter 6, they didn't see him as the bread of life. They didn't see him as the one they truly needed. They didn't see their own desperate sense of sin and emptiness and need. They didn't see that. And so they didn't believe in him. But they understood the way these things go. If you are powerful and impressive in some way, then go show off. I mean, it's natural that they would think that way. It's logical that they would think that way. But was that what Jesus was really after? Was he after like the fanfare? Was he a showman? No, he wasn't. We've been talking all along about that. I mean, even the signs that he performed, the miracles, they were there to help people realize that he had this power, that he had this ability, that he was really sovereign creator right there, touching down on earth, showing his sovereignty and ability over his creation. He was proving it. He was authenticating his, his ministry as the Messiah. He was doing that and and it was impressive, and it was amazing, and it did actually feed people when he multiplied the bread, and it did actually fill people's tummies with wine in chapter 2 when he, when he made wine from water, and it did actually heal people. We, talk, we looked at the, uh, the man at the pool of Bethesda who was healed, and of course there were lepers and blind people. and all. I mean, he did all these amazing things, and it would make sense that they would, he would go and, and be seen and be known, but yet his motivation wasn't just to try to become a celebrity. That wasn't his goal. It wasn't what he was after. He wasn't there merely to perform signs. In a sense, he was there to perform surgery. Soul-level surgery. And his brothers didn't really understand anything of that. They didn't grasp anything of that. And they didn't, as we said, see their own need. And uh, who knows, it would be interesting 
to speak with them. They did later become believers, so it would be interesting to speak with them someday and kind of hear about their experience with him. I mean, can you imagine growing up with a brother who's perfect in every way? I mean, perfect in every way. I mean, it must have been amazing and annoying. I mean, the constant sense of comparisons, because that's what we humans do, right? If you were uh, around me, I have two brothers. One of my brothers is here this morning. One of my brothers is smarter than me. The other brother is funnier than me. I am better looking than both of them, so they have to, they have to deal with that when they're around me, so they have, you know, they have their cross to bear too. But, but humanly, we just make comparisons, right? So they couldn't have helped but, but do this with Jesus, and here he is in perfection every single moment. Every moment. They didn't believe in him. Look, it says in verse 6, So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. And then, and then just read the beginning of verse 7. The world cannot hate you. He says, my time is not yet here, but your time is already, always opportune. So throughout the Gospel of John, over and over it says that there's, it, it's sort of like foreshadowing, it's building this anticipation, it's talking about this hour is coming, this amazing hour is coming, which is itself fascinating because he's already doing amazing things, but we know there's like this future glory coming later in the Gospel of John and there's this sense of like wonder, what is that going to be? What's this hour he's talking about? And we'll say a little bit more about that later. But in this moment, similarly, he says, hey, my time has not yet come. But your time, saying to his brothers, your time is always opportune. Your, your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. Here's what he's saying. The world's, the world's system, what, what the world is doing, it's always doing. And it's always, it's, always, it's always appropriate. It's always fitting. It's just the way the world operates. Like It's always a good time to do what the world's doing. And what is the world doing? Well, contextually here, what he's highlighting is this idea of, of the world is filled with people who are always perpetually seeking to make a name for themselves, to glorify themselves, to honor themselves, to satisfy themselves, to prove themselves, to compete with other people, to gain a platform, to gain an advantage, to gain some pleasure materially or otherwise. Like This is the world system. This is what the world's doing, and it's a big it's, it's a big um, sham. Uh, cha- back in chapter 5, you can turn there if you want to, he said something similar, kind of gets to the root of it. In verse 41, again, speaking with the religious leaders there, he said, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? See what he's saying there? This is what the world is up to constantly. He's just passing glory back and forth between people. And in one sense, he's living out this divine contrast because here he is, the most worthy of glory, God himself in the flesh, and he's actually not seeking to just lift himself up in the normal human way, in the worldly way. He's not doing that. If he was, he would have just kept doing the miracles and, and growing his audience. That's what he would have done. A few weeks ago, my, my daughter showed me on YouTube, this is this channel, it's called Dude Perfect. Some of you may have heard this channel. They have like 50 million subscribers, over 50 million. It's a huge number of subscribers. And they said, Dad, you've got to see this, these group of guys, they have this YouTube channel, they do all these crazy stunts and things, and you've got to watch this one. So we watched this one video where they went to Las Vegas to break the record 
for the longest basketball shot. So the longest shot of actually getting a hoop from the longest distance. And they went to Las Vegas and they went up in this tower. And I forget, the tower is like somewhere, I don't know, 700, 800 feet in the air. And somehow, after attempt, after attempt, after attempt, they shot a basket from like 800 feet away. Like, dropped the ball away. You just watched. The video was amazing. You watched the ball just go down. And somehow, some way, it went in the hoop. And you're just sitting there amazed. And you're like, wow, that's incredible. And also, like, so what? Like, what? Like, this is what you spend all this time and energy and money and resources doing, and you've got a gazillion views and all these followers. That's just the way the, the world works. And, and, and in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that entertainment value of that. But, but Jesus is here, hey, I'm, I'm up to something different. Like, if he wanted to just grow an audience, he could have just kept multiplying bread, making wine from water, uh, healing every single person. He would have just done that forever and just let all the people flock to him because they're amazed and they're just wanting to see all the, just wanting to see the spectacle. But thankfully, that was not his purpose. He wasn't here for just that reason. He came for a much more down and dirty purpose, and it's a good thing. He came to roll up his sleeves As I said earlier, he didn't come just to perform signs. He came to perform surgery. He came to cut us open, which is what we need the most. And this is what it says. This is where it goes next. This is fascinating and amazing. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Like, this this is it. This is the core of it right here. This is the problem. This is the controversy. Talk about polarizing figures. Uh, Donald Trump or someone like that is the most polarizing person politically we've, we've had in a long time, right? Polarizing figures. People have very strong feelings one way or another. When it comes to the polarization of Jesus, why he's controversial and the most controversial figure in human history, this is a big part of why. He says, they hate me because I testify that your deeds are evil. I testify of the world as deeds are evil. And I want to make sure I make this point. This is, it'd be easy for us as church folks to say, well, that's, that's the world, that's the outsiders. And sometimes in Scripture, the word world is used in that sense. Here it is not. For one thing, remember, he's speaking to people, primarily people of the religious community, the Jews. He's speaking to them. For another thing, the Bible says in 1 John 2, that that which is of the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And that is the same in the religious context as it is in the irreligious context. It may wear different clothing. It may look different on the outside. The religious version may polish itself up a little better, but deep down, that's the issue. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And that's what makes us humans go. That's what makes us tick, naturally speaking. And here he says, I came to testify, to speak the truth concerning the human condition that your deeds are evil. And right here, I want to dig into this. I want to dissect this a bit with you because it's easy to hear deeds are evil and just think, okay, bad stuff. Uh, They do bad things. And and yes, but, it, but, it's, but it's deeper than that. First of all, the word works has to do with the results of our intentions and our expenditure of energy. That's that which we're doing. Sometimes it's used of our vocation, what we devote time and energy to hour after hour, week after week. It, it can be used in that sense. It can be used just in, in, in terms of anything that we're doing by our own 
thinking, our own desires, our own intentions, and then the expenditure of energy in a certain direction. That's our works. He says, the world's works are evil. So now let's talk about the word evil. And I looked, this, I looked both these terms up in the word study books and lexicons and, and tried to bring together kind of a definition that helps us get the true sense of this. Because we can hear, okay, evil works, and we've got the works part, so it's that expenditure of intention, moving toward expending energy and doing things, right? It's, it has to do with that. But then evil, we can think, well, just bad things. Or, you know, we think of evil characters in a, in a movie or something. The villain, right? The obvious. Well, well this, is, this is what this word evil points to. That which is toilsome, pain-inducing, troublesome. It emphasizes the inevitable agonies and misery that go along with, with sin. In one lexicon, it described it as that which is laborious, hard in terms of hardships, being pressed and harassed by labors, toils, annoyances, perils. This is a way of describing the world of which we are a part, naturally speaking. We are of this world in terms of our flesh, in terms of our fallen condition. And we have to start there before we can go to the new and we'll get there But we have to look at what is and what Jesus is saying here about why he's hated. Because he unmasks. Because he pulls the facade down. I mean, that's part of surgery. You could go and see a doctor and they could lie to you about your condition, about your symptoms. Oh yeah, you have these symptoms, but it's no big deal. But you could have cancer eating away at your whole body, ravaging you. And if they don't tell you the truth, they're doing you a major disservice. Jesus always tells the truth. And he says, this is, this is the problem. We are weighed down by our laborious lusts and desires that enslave and make us miserable. And we all have our versions of that. We all have our manifestations of that. We all like, remember the character, I may have mentioned this here before, this is a great illustration, but the character in the Lord of the Rings series, and probably a lot of you have seen those movies or read the books, the character Gollum, who at one point was a human being, Normal-looking guy, but by the time we meet him in the movies, at least, he's this gnarly-looking, shriveled-up, skinny, gray skin, big, gross eyes, and just gnarly-looking creature, right? You can probably picture him as I'm describing him. You've seen him. And remember, he's obsessed with the ring, and he calls it, do you remember what he calls it? Precious, yeah, I thought you'd know it. He calls it his precious, like he's clinging to that which is sucking the life out of him. That which is killing him cannot let it go. Obsessed with it. You know, if Jesus were with you right here this morning, if he spent time with you just one-on-one, I think you would experience some things like this. You would experience, first of all, you would know right away, wow, there's something about him. I mean, not not in terms of him being impressive visually, because it says in Isaiah that he he was not of uh, stately form or majesty, that we should be like amazed by his appearance. He didn't look all that special in terms of his physical attributes, but hearing him talk, hearing his tone, watching every aspect of his conduct and how he acts and treats people. I mean, you'd be aware of there's something really special about this person. And simultaneously, you'd be aware of the fact that uh, and there's, something, there's something not right about me. 
you'd be aware of those two realities. Jesus' very presence, of course, Jesus' words, it just all exposes and, and lays us bare. It pulls down the facade. And he says the response so often is, the world hates me. I mean, think of that. He comes to rescue us from that which is toilsome and burdensome and grueling and kills us. I mean, think of it. I mean, because I know you struggle just like I do with your own anxieties and fears and obsessions and you can't stop thinking about certain things or craving certain things or you have certain appetites that you know are harmful but you go back to them over and over and over again. I mean, all those things all a product of how we think and what we think is best for us and what we think is good for us. And he comes to liberate us. The Lamb of God comes to take away the sin of the world and there's something in our nature that still just wants to hold on to it and not let it go. I mean, he comes to, to save mankind and the thanks he gets is hatred. That's the response, naturally speaking. They crying at the same crowds that are saying, hey, hail, king, Hosanna, same people not long after are saying, crucify him. He's not giving us what we want. And what he says to us is, yeah, but I'm giving you what you need. I'm coming right in. I mean, you talk about intrusiveness. You know, certain people, sometimes you talk to them and you feel like, oh, they're kind of intrusive. Like they're asking questions. They're some, I think people experience me that way sometimes because I ask a lot of questions. So it's like, what? But, but I think like Jesus, it's like you just, he just is, he's, he's concerned for, he's interested in the very core of your being, what makes you tick, why you think the way you think, why you get yourself into the jams you get yourself into, why you struggle, why you're enslaved to misery or bitterness or unforgiveness or cravings of whatever kind. Like he actually lovingly cares about you. He wants what's good for you. And he says that the response of the world is, is hatred. Earlier in John chapter 3, he talked about the light comes into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. It's the same idea. It's like we're harmful to ourselves. And Jesus is here and he's disruptive in like the greatest sense of the word disruptive. He's here to disrupt the suicide mission that we're on. And I just want you to stay with me just for a few more moments that the natural response he gets in reaction to that is hatred. What? I mean, for the, for the religious people, let's just take that community, for him to suggest to them that, hey, all the rituals, all the traditions, all the things that you're so dutifully up to really don't amount to anything of value. You need me. I'm your bread of life. And by the way, all that you're doing is just basically evil continually. Those are fighting words. What? Who are you? same time to the irreligious who are just chasing one pleasure after another after another he just says oh yeah by the way that's all empty it's never going to fulfill you but but that's all i have in life and that's the only thing that makes my life living so those are fighting words and here's a god who's who is willing to to fight with us in the best possible way and i can't help myself so i'm jumping ahead in the narrative here but who actually wins that fight not by killing us but by letting us kill him to show us just how different he is. We talked about the world's way, right? The world's way of passing glory back and forth and who's more impressive and who's more powerful and who's the conquering king. And that's why they were so severely disappointed in Jesus because he just wasn't of that sort, was he? But it's a good thing. It's a good thing that he wasn't. 
It's fascinating, and, and again, I'm, I'm kind of foreshadowing a little bit, but just track with me because this fits with where we're, what we've been talking about. But when it says over and over, his hour's coming, his hour's coming, his hour's coming, and you're seeing all these miracles, he's doing all these amazing things, and he's saying amazing things. And then in chapter 12 and chapter 13, he says, now is the time, now is the hour, now is the time for my glorification. You're like, whoa, what's this going to be? And then he ends up on a cross. Like, What? I mean, naturally speaking, it doesn't make any sense. Naturally speaking, it's not what we would even want to see. But it's absolutely what we need to see. A God who loves you enough to say, I take upon myself the curse, the death of your evil works that characterize your entire lives apart from me. I'm all you got. And to see him, to, be, to look upon the one we have pierced, as it says in one of the prophets, to look upon the one we have pierced and to have hearts that break with repentance. Say, God, I, I'm so sorry that I've held on so tenaciously to that which is dishonoring to you, that which belittles you, and that which destroys me and other people. God, I'm sorry. I thank you for loving me. I thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for pouring out your blood for me. Thank you for being the kind of hero that I need. Not the kind this world admires, but the kind that we desperately need. That's what's coming. So if you would, just go with me through the rest of the verses of our passage. A few more little observations. Verse 8 says, Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come. So he tells his brothers, why don't you go ahead and go? I'm going to stay back. Verse 9, having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So there again shows, it illustrates the idea that the Jews had that power. They had that sway over the community and people were afraid of them and what they thought. And there was this division that had occurred and there were some people who, who really believed that Jesus was good and, and they were right. <laughs> and there were those who, who did not, those who on the contrary believed that he was leading people astray. Sure, they did not like the um, the unveiling in terms of how to pull down the facade and how he exposed all as so desperately sinful and needy. And I, and I said earlier, you know, if you, if you were with him, if you spent time with him, you you'd be exposed. And then a little bit more to say about that. So if you were with him, and and you saw how perfect he was, and you saw how deeply imperfect and flawed you were. There's a couple possibilities of how you might respond to that. One would be to, to, to sense that exposure and that comparison and contrast and say, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> Enough of this. That, to run off and to continue in the darkness, to continue hiding, continue covering yourself with your version of fig leaves, whatever that is, to self-atone, to self-justify, to keep pointing the finger at other people and saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as them or whatever, right? All the versions of that. That would be one temptation. And, and frankly, is the more honorable one when it comes to the way our world operates. That's the more honorable way. That's the more, 
respectable way. It's like you still at least have a little bit of self-respect. You know what I mean? Like that would be one option. To go be your own person still. The other would be to accept the exposure. To accept what the light is revealing. To see your misery for what it is. To see the ugliness of your inner golem, whatever your obsession happens to be. To accept the humiliation. To just be there with Him in that place of lowliness and need. To see Him in His provision of covering and forgiveness and to see, hey, hey, everything you need to be proven, He's proven for you. Just to receive Him proving everything for you. I mean, there's nothing in one sense respectable about that. I mean, what do you have to boast in about? You don't have any kind of, you know, like Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, merit badges. You don't have any badges after that. I mean, who wants to do that? Someone who realizes that he's their only hope. When we realize he's all we've got. When you realize that it's, it's his love and covering and grace that we need. We realize we can't save ourselves. We just accept that lowly position. You know, so often we're just obsessed with making ourselves big, more, better, more admired, more whatever. Here is a Jesus, as illustrated in this text beautifully, who is not interested in fanfare. He's not obsessed with making himself more. Here's the greatest condescension conceivable that the God who created all things should live in this world as a man and as a man who over and over and over again was disrespected and just took it. And just lived the lowly life and just served the people around him. And even when they were like trying to get, they were getting almost too excited about all of his amazing powers, he withdrew. And that was his opportunity, and he withdrew. Wasn't after that. Wasn't after the fanfare. Wasn't there to be a celebrity. There to be a savior. I believe that our hearts this morning are in line with, with the disciples and with those who say, this is a good man. That we do believe. That we do see him as the one we desperately need. That we, that we realize, even in this moment, yeah, I, I'm my biggest problem. Some reason, over and over again, I go back to the same patterns, the same ways of thinking, the same ways of operating. I'm always angry or irritated or whatever, or obsessed or preoccupied or depressed or whatever it is. And it's always because enough's just never enough for me. And I just see that, that misery in this moment, and I, and I see Jesus for who he is, and I say, wow. To know that, that he loves me, that he came and on this quest to rescue me, to live and die for me. To know that I'm, I'm safe under his gaze. That that x-ray vision that he has, that he sees right through us, that we are safe there. That all the ugliness, all the brokenness is provided for. It's his full restoration and redemption. That He says that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus whatsoever. There's no condemnation for us. To know that all the things that go through our minds and all the thoughts that we get preoccupied with and all the self-condemning and self-defeating talk or the, all the constant criticism of other people, to know that like, there's a voice that matters more than the voice in our own heads. And that voice declares us loved and forgiven and treasured by our greater God. And that's pretty amazing. And that's who Jesus is for us. Let's pray and
and give him thanks. Father, thank you for your word and its precision, like a scalpel cutting us open. The words of Christ, the works of Christ, his perfection, his glory, his greatness. In a moment of honesty, God, we confess to you that even as believers in Christ, that doesn't mean there's anything better about us inherently. In fact, we know that we're still so often plagued by our own greed, our own desires, our own pride. We're so frequently stuck in the, the works of evil, the toilsome, burdensome, miserable, harmful, painful, poisonous, toxic works of the flesh, of our fallen condition. We, we, we can't polish that up. We can't cover that up. It's a fool's errand. To try to lie, try to hide, try to pretend, try to put on a mask, but Jesus just pulls it down. Just shows us who we really are. And so we sit here in this lowly place And you tell us in Isaiah that though you dwell in high and holy place, you also dwell with the lowly and the contrite. And we are this morning the lowly and the contrite, and we thank you, God, for your amazing condescension. Sending Jesus thousands of years ago to stoop, to meet us where we are. To be the kind of hero, not the kind of hero this world clamors for, but the kind of hero that we absolutely desperately need, the kind of hero who is a savior, who is a great physician of the soul. So in a fresh way this morning, we lay our soul out before you. We thank you for the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of healing that you've already done in our hearts, opening our eyes to see you, to see your goodness and kindness, to see that your authority is our best way, that the truth sets us free. We thank you for the healing that you've ministered to us through the gospel. Help us to rest in that truth. Help us to walk in that truth. Help us to bear the fruit of that truth in our relationship with Jesus. Help us to love and serve the people around us in obscurity, in simplicity, not seeking some grandiose things for ourselves or trying to impress other people, but simply just trying to meet needs and help the people that are right in front of us that you may be glorified, your son may be glorified, and that all of us may be benefited. So we thank you for what you've taught us this morning in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.